Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, after a historic election turnout driven by mobilizations like Black Lives Matter that signaled the longed-for end of the Trump presidency, it's sad to see corporate Democrats leap to blame the left, including activists, for denying the party a landslide and call for immediate compensatory overtures to the right. Sad, but not surprising, as that's been the practice of elite Democrats and their media abettors for decades. Quote, when Michael Dukakis chose Senator Lloyd Benson as his running mate, he turned his back not just on Jesse Jackson, but on two decades of Democratic Party thinking. He sent an unmistakable message to the activist constituencies of the Democratic Party that the days of litmus test liberalism are over, close quote. That's the Washington Post's David Broder in 1988. You could say everything old is new again, but corporate media's allegiance to an ever-drifting center gets more dangerous by the day. Fair senior analyst for election 2020, Julie Holler, joins us on the show. Also on Counterspin, the way politicians and pundits talk about electoral issues suggests they forget that behind issues are real people with real problems. For millions of Americans, those problems include being out of work and out of health care in the midst of a pandemic. And now, thanks in particular to Senate Republicans, on track to lose what unemployment benefits they have been receiving. Josh Bivens of the Economic Policy Institute will bring us an update. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. Disturbing as it is to see politicians and some media advising a Biden administration to vehemently reject progressive policy goals, there's more. As Owen Higgins notes in a piece for Business Insider, a concurrent strain of argument is that Trump himself should face no real public reckoning. Higgins cites a column by historian Jill Lepore in the Washington Post, heralded as eloquent by the paper's Nicholas Kristof, let history, not partisans, prosecute Trump. Lepore says nothing like one of those reconciliation commissions other countries do is appropriate here. Trump's wrongdoing instead, quote, should be investigated by journalists, chronicled by historians, and in some instances tried in ordinary courts. Close quote. How those courts could adequately address such wrongdoing as allowing, through corruption and mismanagement, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people is unclear. Her moral point is, though, many Trump critics will find this suggestion maddeningly insufficient, Lepore notes, but chides, quote, the appetite for vengeance is a symptom of the same poison, close quote. The call to coddle Trump, like the same outlet's insistence that it would be mean to send bankers who derailed the economy to jail, is evidence of the total divorce between real people's lives and experiences and the puppets and caricatures in media's narrative. There's no accountability to the millions of people who lost their lives, their loved ones, their homes, their jobs— then, as now, protecting the status quo involved marginalizing calls for justice by portraying them as an emotional desire for vengeance, better tempered by cooler heads. Quote, 
Higher capital requirements may not satisfy bloodlust the way a CEO in chains would, but they're going to do a lot more, close quote. That was the Washington Post in 2013. At the New York Times, it was, quote, you're entitled to wonder whether any of the highly paid executives who helped kindle the disaster will ever see jail time. The harder question, though, is whether anybody should, close quote. The call to let Trump go gently also evokes the call not to prosecute those who committed acts of torture for the U.S., purporting to be some sort of healing gesture about looking forward, not back, while in fact preserving the conditions that led to the horrors. Now, as then, doing what we're told is the dry-eyed, grown-up thing to do involves erasing the harms done to actual human beings. That's not politic or pragmatic. It's perverse. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Seventy percent of Republicans don't think the elections were free and fair, according to Politico. A stark rise, they note, perhaps unnecessarily, from the 35 percent that felt that way before Trump lost. There are surely multiple complicated reasons for that. One may be that they've been insufficiently disabused by corporate media that will rhetorically hold up Biden's votes alongside Trump's threats and delusions, because both sides, after all, see a path to the White House. The same press corps that for years balanced evidence of real voter suppression with empty claims of voter fraud, as if it would be unfair to acknowledge that one side reflected reality and the other didn't, as if it weren't for them to say. Now, even within acceptance of a Biden victory, election results are being treated as a kind of Rorschach, and in that circumstance, we know that certain interpretations tend to carry the day. Joining us to talk about corporate media's post-election day performance is FAIR senior analyst for election 2020, Julie Holler. She joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Julie Holler. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, it's like no matter what happens, elites, including elite media, try to cram it into the same frame. The lesson is always the same. Your latest for FAIR.org describes a post-election phenomenon that listeners will recognize from today's headlines, but it's not really new at all. What are you talking about there? Well, the last article I wrote is about this phone call that happened right after the election among House Democrats. This was a private conversation, but it got leaked to the press in which the right wing of the party started to just go off on the left wing, blaming the left for the election being not the blowout that they had hoped. So, you know, there was a lot of expectation going into election night that Democrats would boost their House majority, they would get the Senate, they'd get the presidency, they'd get a lot of state legislatures. And very quickly, it turned out that that just didn't come to pass. So there was a lot of finger pointing that started from the right toward the left saying, well, you know, the reason that this didn't play out how we thought is because you on the left were talking about socialism. You were talking about Medicare for all. You were talking about the Green New Deal. You were talking about 
all sorts of things that made it hard for us to get reelected, to get new seats, to win the swing districts. This is a moment of reckoning. We need to move forward, learning from our mistakes, and the mistakes were all yours. <laughs> the left wing of the party, you know, represented by folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, shot back saying, you know, listen, we don't need to be pointing fingers right now, but if you're going to start doing that, let's really step back and, and take a look at what happened. And let's look at what how the campaigning was done. Were we really all in on digital? Were we using best practices? We weren't knocking on doors, partly, largely because of the pandemic. But was that a mistake? There were some progressives who did decide to continue knocking on doors in a safe way. And there were a lot of decisions that were made about campaigning that one could look at. One could also look at the fact that, you know, a lot of these positions that the left has been pushing are, in fact, very popular. So the idea that this is what sunk the Democrats just seems very disingenuous. So you think, okay, well, this is a story about what went wrong, right? What went wrong for the Democrats? It's going to take a while to give a full accounting of this. But for the major, you know, establishment press, instead of trying to actually figure out whether the right wing here is correct, they basically just republish all the accusations. They give a little space for the left to defend itself. But the Washington Post article that I looked at, the balance of sources in this article was remarkable. They quoted and paraphrased 14 sources that blamed the left. And that was counterbalanced by four sources that defended the left. It's also really interesting to note that a lot of those sources were anonymous. The right-wing Democrat sources were anonymous. And twice they were described just as Democrats rather than as what they like to call centrist Democrats or moderate Democrats. So there was a line that the Post included that was something like, you know, privately, Democrats have said that the answer is obvious. It's because the party is running too far to the left. Well, did, do Democrats say that? Do all Democrats say that? This is one of the things that just drives me insane about media coverage like this and should drive everyone insane, I think, who, who believes in a free and fair press is that you characterize all Democrats as having this position. It erases the left wing of the party, and it makes it seem like the legitimate position of the party is the one that's voiced by its right. It totally marginalizes the left wing of the party. This is happening because this is who the corporate reporters are feeling closest to. This is who's in their Rolodexes. I was looking back at the interview that we did about election coverage during the primaries, and it just it's such a familiar script. This is baked in to the media coverage and has been forever because this is who the sources are. Corporate media sources in the Democratic Party, they just tend to be the more right-wing, the more establishment sources. That's who they're comfortable calling. That's who they talk to all the time. That's probably who they hang out with playing softball on the weekends, for all we know. Right. Well, it's also almost vertigo-inducing how media will pump up, not just editorially, but through these kind of sourcing tricks and tropes in reporting, as you're just describing, the idea that talking about Medicare for all is too radical or a Green New Deal is a, is a step too far and turns voters off. And then you'll turn the page and read about a poll that says 
that in fact those ideas are popular. And I guess that's kind of one of the things that I resent most about elite media coverage on this is the way they they lie to us about us, even though we know they know it, you know. So how can you be fronting this argument that these ideas are so unpopular when they know from their own polling data that in fact these ideas are very popular? Right. Whose voices, whose opinions are, are you surrounded by every day? That becomes what you think normal is. Because they have all of their centrist sources, this is the chatter around them. This is just the conventional wisdom. It doesn't matter what the polls say. It doesn't matter what the people say. It's that Washington conventional wisdom says that Medicare for all is a deal breaker, that the Green New Deal is dead in the water. The other thing that I was pointing out in my article, who are these candidates funded by? They never talk about that. They never reveal that, that in these articles. You get a quote from a representative talking about how we can't do Medicare for all, and how we're going to lose if we do, if we run on Medicare for all, and not talking about the fact that this representative, James Clyburn, has taken more money from pharma than any other senator or House representative in the last 10 years. Right. So, of course, what, what's he going to be saying? You know, But if readers don't have this information, how are they to judge his motivations when he's speaking? Well, in September, when Trump said he might try and stay in office, even if he lost, we saw headlines like NPR's Trump declines to promise peaceful transfer of power after election. You know, like that's a thing presidents sometimes do. They just decline to promise. Now I'm reading headlines like experts say there isn't a constitutional path forward for Trump to remain president, which I suppose is meant to be reassuring. But what I take from it is it's okay with media and media are telling me to get ready to be okay with the idea that maybe this could come down to what experts say. You know, I'm not calmed by that. And you shouldn't be. It's like if we just keep marching forward and we keep saying, okay, Biden won and we give both sides. But as long as we keep saying that Biden won, then it's, it's just going to have to happen. Even if we keep on giving Trump a platform here and giving this idea that, well, like he doesn't really have a path, but he says he does. Just even by repeating those claims, the reporting on the party in general supporting him. I feel like this is just really dangerous. We're not talking about a coup in the classic sense, but we're talking about something that's maybe even more dangerous because it flies under the radar a bit more, because it's the kind of thing that is slow moving. It just sort of happens. You don't have to have a military takeover. Um, you just have to have the party refuse to acknowledge the results of an election in a, in a corporate media that kind of just lets experts talk and lets the right and the left talk at each other and never really comes out and says on the front page, you know, they're undermining democracy. They're stealing an election. Stop making it sound as though it's red ideas versus blue ideas when at this point we're really talking about, you know, whether we want this democratic project such as it is to continue or whether we want to keep eroding it and eroding it until we pave a path for it to really go a whole other way. I, I feel like journalists have a special role in really putting a stake in the ground on that and I'm not seeing it. There's just too much fear. For so many years, there's just this ingrained idea, particularly in these, in these outlets that are perceived as liberal, which as anyone who's listened to us ever knows, <laughs> we would disagree with that characterization. But this idea that you have to at least 
make efforts for the other side to believe that you are giving them a fair shake. You know, it's this false balance that is putting us into a dangerous position because you, you don't want to give any sort of balance to the autocratic side here. All right. Well, end on that note, we've been speaking with FAIR senior analyst for Election 2020. She's Julie Holler. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining us this week on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. A CNN story leads with the news that, quote, America's jobs recovery is slowing down, close quote. That sounds unfortunate, but not disastrous, more like a blip in a generally positive trend. And if you stop reading there, you might think that's what's going on. But only if your knowledge of the unemployment crisis comes just from news media, as opposed to real life. Because while some politicians and pundits debate whether Democrats should speak the word socialism, millions of Americans are out of work, lacking health care, and running out of the benefits they've been using to hold things together. Why is that? And what would a policy program that centered those people look like? And then again, what kind of reporting might help us get there? We're joined now by Josh Bivens, Research Director at the Economic Policy Institute and author of Failure by Design, The Story Behind America's Broken Economy, and Everybody Wins, Except for Most of Us, What Economics Really Teaches About Globalization. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Josh Bivens. Thanks for having me. Well, I wonder if you could give us some grounding in the scope of the unemployment problem. Media often use numbers without context. And then if the context is the recovery is slowing, that seems itself to require more context. Roughly how many people out of work are we talking about? And why is it so hard to say? So I think it's Hard to say in large part because of how unusual this economic crisis has been. It's been driven by a, you know, once in a lifetime so far and hopefully once in a lifetime ever pandemic. I think the best summary of sort of how damaged the U.S. job market remains is that at the end of September, if you just compare how many jobs were in the economy then versus how many jobs should have been in the economy given the jobs that were there before the pandemic and just the natural growth in the economy over time, you're looking at a gap of about 11 million workers. And so I think that sort of 11 million jobs gap is probably the best way to think about the distance from where we are today and where we would be in something looking like a healthy economy. And you have to think also about people who maybe they haven't lost their job, but they've lost hours. Lots of folks are impacted. That footprint is much wider than even sort of people applying for unemployment benefits might demonstrate, right? That's definitely right. If you include people who would normally be working full-time but are reporting themselves part-time for economic reasons, and then you include people who, when you ask them, have you had any interruption in your work over the past couple of months related to the virus, then you're getting much closer to a number like 25 million people who have had something about their working situation still damaged as of September. Turns out wishing it away doesn't work. There seems to be a kind of magical thinking that, you know, if we stop thinking about it, it will go away. And and it almost seems like something's happening with benefits. If they expire, then somehow the suffering will end. Uh, At the end of July, Republicans let that $600 across the board increase in unemployment insurance benefits expire. And now 
if I understand it right, if nothing happens, other federal programs are going to expire too, right around Christmas, right? So that's right. So the sort of CARES Act, which was the big sort of relief and recovery legislation signed in the spring, it included the extra $600 for everybody collecting unemployment that ran out, like you said, at the end of July. It also did a really good thing in Normally, our unemployment insurance system is super patchy in terms of who actually qualifies to get benefits when they lose a job. If you think about Uber drivers or other people who are not classified as employees but are instead classified, often incorrectly, as independent contractors, they can't get UI. You think about genuine, correctly classified independent contractors who suffer during recessions, but they can't get it. They instituted something in the CARES Act, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, that actually just greatly expanded the universe of people who could collect unemployment insurance benefits. That's what runs out at the end of this year. It's been terrible to roll out because we have disinvested so much in our UI systems over recent decades, but it was a real attempt to make our sort of, you know, welfare state much more protective, kind of trying to do it on the fly with a rickety system, but it was a super admirable effort. And it did pay off, like tens of millions of people actually got some aid through this expanded PUA program. And that indeed does go away at the end of this year if Congress does nothing. And of that, uh, a recent EPI press release says the cruelty is mind-blowing, which I know are not terms in which economists generally speak, you know, although maybe they should because economics is always life or death or can be. But the idea of Senate Republicans blocking relief, you know, seeing people hurting through no fault of their own and blocking aid to those people Cruelty is the first thing that comes to mind, but the work that you've been doing recently has been trying to convey that although cruelty should be enough, it also is bad economics. I wonder how you explain that to people. There's sort of an overlapping set of economic crises going on. Like we had the huge contraction of economic activity in the middle of this year when things shut down, restaurants, hotels, air travel came to an almost complete standstill. And then when you sort of shut off economic activity like that, if you don't do anything to provide people income when their jobs go away, you're going to layer another crisis on top of that, which is you can reopen the restaurants, but if people don't have money to spend in them, the activity, the jobs, the the sort of self-sustaining income, that just won't come back. And so we actually had a pretty good third quarter of economic activity this year measured by like GDP, and we even got some good jobs coming back. And there were two things going on. One, we just reopened a bunch of things, maybe some of them prematurely probably, but things reopened, restaurants, hotels, things like that. And in the meantime, at least until August, we provided pretty generous unemployment insurance with the extra $600, and we provided the $1,200 stimulus checks. In terms of getting people's income stabilized during the crisis, we did things right with the CARES Act. The problem was it all ran out. There was one stimulus check, then it was done. The extra unemployment insurance benefits ran out at the end of July. And so now we got about half the jobs back that we lost earlier in the crisis by September, but we're still 11 million short. That's a huge job gap. That's like a really bad recession in and of itself. And now we've got no further policy aid at all. And so those next 11 million jobs, even if the virus goes away, which, as you noted, it has not gone away, even if it did go away, those remaining 11 million jobs to get back were going to be tough to get. And they're going to be almost impossible unless we get some real income support for people in the meantime. And so we've basically just made recovery much, much harder than it has to be 
by cutting off that unemployment insurance. And we're not going to see like the three and a half percent unemployment we had before the pandemic struck. We're not going to see that again for years unless we do something to provide much stronger income support for people going forward. Well, let me ask you, finally, we tend to have a very narrow vision of the field of economics. We imagine it to be univocal and uncontested. uh, And that leads to imagining that we as people don't have fundamental choices in the way we want work to be valued and resources to be distributed, which leads me to ask, given that we're in a moment of potential change, what would a worker-centered economy look like, an economy that centered the very folks who have been kind of used and abused, you know, flotsam and jetsam in the current situation and have realized the tenuousness of the jobs that they do have and the health care that's attached to those jobs, what would it mean to build an economy around working people and what would be some of the key pieces of that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say first, there's definitely no silver bullet There was not like one piece of legislation that passed at some point that so disempowered workers. It was just sort of a steady, steady chipping away of anything that gave workers any leverage or bargaining power in the labor market. And so centering workers in a genuine recovery and really trying to rebuild uh, economic security, it's going to take movement on a bunch of fronts, some really important fronts. One is just make returning to very low rates of unemployment for a very long time, an absolutely key part of all policy that in sort of when you're recovering from recessions, that requires fiscal policy. It requires that relief and recovery. Once the economy gets up and running, that requires a Federal Reserve that's not going to prematurely stomp on the brakes in the name of fighting inflation that might happen at some point in the future. Instead, we need to really let you know good recoveries ride for as long as they possibly can. I think it means re- storing really key labor standards like the federal minimum wage. When you measure it, you know, inflation adjusted, the federal minimum wage is really low today relative to historical experience, far below what it was at its high watermarks in the 1960s and 70s. And so a really substantial increase in that is key to making sure we have a a really good high wage floor. I think another huge part is trying to restore the ability of workers to bargain collectively. We've allowed unions to just get savaged by a combination of increased employer aggressiveness in fighting them, and a federal government that doesn't keep the playing field level. It just basically tells the corporations, yep, you go after unions and legal and illegal means, and we'll do nothing serious to stop it. I think those are three really important things. And then I think there's just you know dozens of other everydays and rules and regulations, whether it's OSHA or wage an hour or wage theft, just all these different margins that we sort of abandoned that are supposed to protect workers and we haven't protected them. And I think those need to be rebuilt. But basically it requires a group of committed people every day waking up to think, how can we actually buttress instead of erode workers leverage and bargaining power in the labor market? We've been speaking with Josh Bivens. He's research director at the Economic Policy Institute. They're online at epi.org. Josh Bivens, thanks for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.